0: Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. As we continue to preach our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we have landed on a very special text. The Lord's Supper, Matthew 26. very famous words take eat this is my body how many times do you think those words have been repeated let me think about that Sunday after Sunday church after church in nation after nation, generation after generation, century after century, these words have been recited over and over and over again Take, eat. This is my body. That familiarity is glorious. What else has been repeated like that? Don't let your familiarity with these words obscure their glory. Jude, the brother of Jesus, says, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's talking about the original Passover. I want you to wrap your mind about that around that. The one who, who saved a people out of Egypt in a pillar of cloud and fire now says, take, eat. This is my body. Jesus, in less than 24 hours from now, is going to be crucified by his own people. But this is no surprise. Not at all. This is no surprise. First of all, he's been warning his disciples all along since Matthew 16. But this moment that we're going to look at today, this moment didn't start in Matthew. Thousands of years ago, the Lord instituted the Passover before he executed the Passover. And it was all to point back to this redemption that God's people had from Egypt by the blood of the firstborn and by the blood of the Lamb and point forward to this greater redemption by the firstborn of God who is the Lamb of God. So surprised. No surprise at all, only God orchestrated glory. And so let's pray before we read this text from Matthew. God in heaven, we do exalt you today. We exalt you as the one true and living God and there is no other. And we say, hallowed be your name. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would feed your sheep. Feed your sheep, Lord. Exalt your name here in your church. Call your lost sheep out of darkness. I pray the Spirit would come so that these words come, not in word alone, but in power. Be magnified. Build up your church for the glory of your name. It's in your name, in your name, in your name only, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Matthew 26, I'm going to start in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas Who would betray him? Answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, need to get a few things out of the way for the sake of brevity and most of all for the sake of focus, there are actually four things that I'm not going to talk about much, but I'm going to tell you now. The first thing is the betrayal of Judas, Dustin talked about that last week in great detail and we'll Obviously, have to mention Judas here, but my focus is going to be primarily on verses 26 through 29, the Lord's Supper being instituted by Christ. The second thing I'm going to, not going to be able to talk about much is uh, the Passover timeline debate. You may not even know there is such a thing. But let me just establish this: Jesus is celebrating the Passover. There's a little difficulty in harmonizing the Passover crucifixion timeline in Matthew, Mark, and Luke versus the Gospel of John. It's led to two different prevailing opinions. One is that Jesus died on the same afternoon when the lambs are being slaughtered in Jerusalem just before the traditional Passover meal. Therefore, this meal here takes place 24 hours before the traditional Passover meal. The second prevailing opinion is that Jesus died actually on the day of Passover proper in the afternoon following this nighttime meal, but not at the same time. Passover lambs are being slaughtered. Regardless of which of those opinions, you fall into, this is sure. Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. We'll see that in a minute. The third thing on want to pass over is the wine or grape juice debate. Short story, Jesus and his disciples drank wine. There's no refrigeration. Grape juice fermented quickly. But, rest at ease, Jesus and his disciples did not in any way drink wine here to get intoxicated. Okay, most of the wine in that day was of low alcohol content. Most of it was watered down to keep the water purified. Plus, this Passover tradition, as we'll see, has only four cups of wine purposefully consumed. The fourth thing we're going to skip, is the transubstantiation debate. Short story, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic means of grace. The bread and the wine do not mystically transform into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ in any way. That is Roman, Catholic, superstitious, nonsense, that grossly demeans the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're Catholic, I'd love to talk to you about this. The bread and wine are not literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Instead, they are powerful symbols that make the Lord's Supper one of God's prescribed means of grace for his people. And this will be the major part of the the theme of this sermon. All right. Don't let those things distract you from the beauty of the Lord's Supper. All right, that leads to point number one. The Lord's Supper is instituted during the Passover meal. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. So with that timeline debate set aside, I think it's clear Reason number one, it's clear, is the text says so. Verse 17, the first day of unleavened bread, Jesus' uh, disciples said, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Verse 18, he says that the guy will respond to them, uh, No, you tell this guy that I will keep the Passover at your house. In verse 19, it says the disciples did as Jesus asked, they went and prepared the Passover. So I think Matthew is communicating without a shadow of a doubt the idea that Jesus is about to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Now this term Passover often refers to the entire week-long feast or the festival called Unleavened Bread that was commanded in Exodus at the actual original Passover. The Passover proper is the first meal of this seven-day festival that commemorates or remembers this redemption out of Egypt. Back when in Exodus, the Lord commanded every household to kill a lamb towards twilight at the end of the day on the 14th, then paint the doorpost with blood, and then eat the Passover meal in haste. And now at this time, it's nighttime. You kill the lamb towards the end of the day, and then you eat the supper at nighttime. And so according to the the Jewish reckoning of time, the day begins at night. The beginning of the 15th day is the beginning of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. This is what is playing out here in Matthew 26. They prepared the Passover. It's the first day of unleavened bread, and it's at night when the Passover meal would be eating. So here we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. But note what it says. It says they reclined at table. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. This is actually a tradition. This is a Passover tradition, not commanded in Scripture. The Jews adopted this reclining position... Because slaves stood up during the meal. Not free people. Free people were climbed. And this is exactly what the Passover represented. Liberation from slavery. Deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And so right here in the middle of this God-ordained Passover and in the middle of its traditions, Jesus institutes the most exalted Religious ordinance in the history of mankind. Most commentators believe that Jesus is uh, following this traditional Passover liturgy, a lot of which is still practiced today, minus the sacrifice, of course. So here's sort of the order slaughter the lamb. At the temple, mid-afternoon, roast the lamb after sunset, begin the Passover meal with thanksgiving, take the first, the first of four cups of wine, eat a course of greens and bitter herbs, explain the symbols, explain the exodus, sing the first part of the halil, which is Psalms 113 through 118. Then drink the second cup, of wine, and eat the main course, and after the main course, drink the third cup of wine, which is referred to as the cup of blessing, and then sing, sing the rest of the halil, and then drink the fourth and last cup of wine, the cup of consummation. Most commentators believe, and I agree, that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper On that third cup, the cup of blessing. Now, insofar as that's true, that is both interesting and intentional. In other words, even in the use of extra biblical tradition, Jesus is trying to show us something. And that's because the Lord's Supper is symbolic, the Lord's Supper is symbolic. Like the Passover, the Lord's Supper is supposed to point beyond itself. Like the Passover, the elements of the Lord's Supper are symbols that represent greater realities. And God has done all this purposefully and graciously for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. The Passover was symbolic. In the middle of this Passover tradition, one of the kids would ask the question, why why, why are we doing this? What What do these things mean? And then the head of the household would explain the Passover. He would explain the history of the Exodus. He would explain what these symbols mean. And this tradition is derived from a commandment by God at the original Passover in Exodus 12 God says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared us. And even in these traditions with the four cups of wine, it's pointing to something. Symbolically pointing to something. They point to four of these promises that God had made to Israel through Moses in Exodus 6. These four promises. God says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and so the Passover points back to that redemption from Egypt and forward to a greater redemption that is to come and so it's in the midst of that that Jesus is interrupting and offering some new and greater symbolism the Lord's Supper is symbolic look at the very first words in verse 26 he says take eat this this is my body Get that image in your mind. Jesus holding a piece of unleavened bread and says, this is my body. Now this is where you have to decide, is this literally his body or is it a symbol? And like the stunned crowds in John 6, Jesus is again saying, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, is Jesus calling for cannibalism or symbolism? Well, I'll tell you this. If Jesus is being literal and not symbolic, then we are all in trouble because he just broke the commandments of God. God commands not to drink blood. You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. No, Jesus is not being literal. Jesus is giving us a sign. When Jesus says, this is my body, he means this broken bread is a symbol of my body. Symbolism. Just like he did in all the parables. Just like God does in all the types and the shadows and the pictures in the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, the Lord's Supper and the Passover both point to the same thing. Redemption for the people of God, accomplished by the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God. So the Lord's Supper is a sign. Sign of the gospel. I want you to think about that. I want you to remember that every time you take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the gospel in picture form. The visible word the famous saying a picture is worth a thousand words well guess what God purposefully and graciously gives us rich pictures to help us in contemplating deep theological truths and it's glorious and it's helpful that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is for that is exactly how it should be used to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see the glory of Christ, to see the perfect finished work of Christ, to see the glory of the church, to see and hope for the life to come. And so, what does it signify? If it's a sign, what does it signify? Like the little boy during Passover might ask, What do you mean by this? Service. And so let's examine the elements as Jesus unfolds them in Matthew 26. First, the Lord's Supper is a sign of the incarnation of Christ. Very first thing he says in verse 27 Take, eat, this is my body. And where where should your mind go? Jesus has a body. Jesus has a body. The eternal Son of God has a body. Dustin exalted the Trinity this morning. The second person of the triune God stepped into His own creation and became a man. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that. The Word became flesh. Flesh. The one handing out bread made the stars. 2,000 years ago, God became a man and walked on the earth and died. Don't, Don't ever let that stop staggering you. God became a man. He says, this is my body. God says, this is my blood. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the God-man. He humbled himself and took on flesh and blood for this very moment so that He could come and suffer and die to save His people from their sins. Christ Jesus really did come into the world to save sinners. It's a reminder of that. It's a reminder of the sinlessness of Christ, tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. When He says, this is my body, what is He holding? He's holding un leavened bread a twofold sign one is that the, the redemption is at hand it's immediate get ready like in the passover original and also it's a sign of sinlessness jesus is the unleavened bread of life think about that if leaven is a sign of sin, guess what? Jesus had none in Him. You know that He appeared to take away sin and in Him is no sin. Think about how incredibly amazing that is that He lived as a man immersed, literally immersed in this sin-soaked world, yet He remained the Lamb without blemish. Man, sin abounds. In case you did not know that, sin abounds. Sin is everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. It's without. It's within. No man has ever lived without sinning. Not even for a day. Except this man. The one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Perfect, sinless, spotless, the unleavened bread, the Passover lamb without blemish. Born of a virgin with no corruption from Adam, 30 plus years of perfect obedience and devotion to his heavenly father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the holy one of God. The spotless lamb led to slaughter which leads to the second point, the second sign the Lord's Supper is a sign of that sacrifice of all the pictures in the design of the Lord's Supper, this is the chief this one is supreme the redemptive death of Jesus on the cross Paul makes this clear 1 Corinthians 11, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, guess what? You proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. The chief symbol here. He reminds us that Jesus really had a body and he really suffered and he really died. Just look again at the imagery here in verse 26. It says Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And gave it to him. So he takes the bread which represents his body and he broke it. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the broken body of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget. Jesus did not just lay down somewhere and peacefully pass away in his sleep. He he was not executed by lethal injection his body was broken his body was broken and from the very beginning as Jesus began to talk about his death he indicated clearly that it was going to be brutal and I mean brutal he said he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things what an understatement in the next couple of paragraphs in Matthew, you're going to witness some of the most brutal, merciless, hateful treatment of another human being that you'll ever see. The next 24 hours here should leave you aghast. The way the Son of God was beaten and slapped and backhanded, and spit upon, and whipped, and torn, and nailed, and hung, and speared, mocked. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. And you know what? It was the will of the Lord to crush his body. His body was broken and he broke it. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He subjected himself willingly to this suffering. Jesus came into the world. He was not dragged. Jesus went to the cross. They did not take him there. He said, for this reason, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. He broke it and he gave it. In in the account in Luke, God says, Jesus says, this is my body which is given for you. He laid down his life for his friends. No greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for his friends. So the Lord's Supper is a sign of this sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ because he died for our sins, not his own. Those are our sins laid on his broken body. So body and blood, a sign of the poured out blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Don't forget that his blood was poured out. This is what he says in verse 28. This, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out. See, we, we do not celebrate a bloodless Passover or a bloodless Yom Kippur Like the Jews of today do, who are blind to their own Messiah. No, no, the the Lord's Supper celebrates a bloody Savior. And again, don't miss this, don't water this down. Do not miss the brutality of the whips and the thorns and the nails and the spear. Do not shield your eyes. Do not shield your eyes. From the blood of the cross. He bled out. Like a slaughtered lamb. He bled out. And God says when I see the blood. I'll pass over you. This is what he's talking about. Forgiveness. Because there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of His blood. The wages of sin is death. Get that. If you sin, if there's sin anywhere in your life, guess what? The only the only remedy is blood. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. But guess what? It's just not any blood. No, 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 it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and these other type of things to, to take away sin. That's impossible. But you need a blood sacrifice. And here's the good news. In verse 28, the sinless Son of God says, "This is my blood. You need a blood sacrifice. But none of those will do. This is my blood. poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The purpose. The efficacy for the forgiveness of sins. And he's saying, take, eat, drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Look, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Which, which leads to the third sign here. Our union with Christ. And don't, don't miss, don't miss how shocking this moment must have been. Just like in John 6, right here in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus stops everything and says, this is my blood. This is my body. Eat it. Drink it. If you don't, you have no life in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't have me in you, you will die in your sins. If you do not have Christ in you, you will die in your sin. Don't miss this wonderful picture that we rehearse every week. In John 5, Jesus says, He has life in himself. Life in himself. He says that he is the real man from heaven. He's the bread of God. He's the bread of life that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold, there goes the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now Jesus in this moment, in in this upper room, at this night, he brings all of this together in one profound picture. On the eve of his crucifixion, he says, here, take and eat and drink for the forgiveness of sin. To eat and drink is a symbol in itself. It's a symbol of receiving this sacrifice by faith. You've heard the phrase, man, that's hard to swallow. What does that mean? It means something's hard to believe. Do you believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead on the third day? Do you believe that you stand forgiven and wholly blameless before God only because of him? Do you believe, really? Do you believe you have eternal life because of Jesus Christ? Guess what? You swallowed the hook. You have received the gospel hook, line, and sinker. But more than that, To eat and drink is a symbol of the reality of our union with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Here is one of the most important questions that you can ever answer Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? That's what you're saying every time you take the Lord's Supper. Christ is in me. And I am in Christ. Nothing can separate us. This is what the eating and drinking points to. Our union with Christ. This is how we're saved. Our union with Christ. Like a marriage, the two have become one flesh. My sin laid on Him. His righteousness laid on me. I become part of His body. His spirit is in me, leading me in holiness. And this is the connection with that other church ordinance, baptism. Baptism is the sign of our initial union with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a sign of our ongoing union with Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is Christ in you? If you're a son of God, he is. Because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. This is the hope of glory. Christ in you. And this is the picture of the Lord's Supper. Christ in you. But not just in you, Christ in me and you. And you, and you, and you, and all of you. All of you. Jesus says in verse 27, which leads to the next point. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the new covenant. Christianity is very personal. The sacrifice, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is very personal, no doubt. Praise God for that. The Son of God loved me And he gave himself up for me. That is so true. But guess what else is so true? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice our text does not say Jesus died for just one. Nor does it say that he died for all. It says he died for many. You see that? Verse 28 This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, here's the deal. Jesus died for the sins of his people. This is how God, Matthew starts his gospel. Before Jesus is even born, they say, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And he does so by the blood of the covenant. He does so by fulfilling, establishing, and inaugurating the new covenant promised by God. The blood of Christ is what establishes the new covenant. See that in verse 28. He says, This is my blood of the covenant. Luke says, Of the new covenant. So right here, in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus not only points to himself as the fulfillment of Passover, but he also pulls together two major theological strings into one statement. The old covenant inaugurated by Moses and the new covenant promised by God through the prophet of Jeremiah. So on Passover... God redeems Israel out of Egypt by the death of the firstborn, by the death of the Lamb. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and establishes a covenant with them. How? How does he do that? By pouring out blood. Moses took half the blood from the sacrifice and threw it against the altar. He took the other half of the blood and threw it on the people and said similar words. Behold the blood of the covenant. That the Lord has made with you. And so Jesus takes this language from the inauguration of the old covenant. And pairs it up with the promises of the new covenant from Jeremiah. Behold the days are coming when I will make a new covenant declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. In one moment. In one moment sentence. Jesus establishes himself as the mediator of the new and better covenant. It's no longer Moses in the old covenant that provided no forgiveness of sins. No, it's Jesus, the son of God, the better mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. This blood, the blood of the covenant, secures all Those new covenant benefits for all of His people. This is what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. This is what He's saying to us. We're remembering it is finished. Christ has secured our eternal redemption by means of His own blood. He's made all those new covenant promises realities. A new heart devoted to God. His spirit within us, causing us to walk in his ways and total forgiveness forever. For who? Every member of the new covenant, from least to the greatest, says the Lord. For all who draw near to Christ through faith, for all who take and eat spiritually, for every member of his body, the church. church is the new covenant people of God redeemed by the blood of Christ and that's the fifth sign the Lord's supper is for them it's for the many, it's for the church it's a reminder it's a reminder for all that God has done for us in Christ and he really really wants us to remember this It's a commandment. The Lord's Supper is a command from Christ for his church. It's not optional. Notice the language here is not optional. He gives it to them and commands them to take and eat, drink of it, all of you. This is not an optional language. This is imperative language. And the account in Luke makes this command explicit. He says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. Like baptism, the Lord's Supper is not optional, it's a commandment. Now, does bad baptism save you? No. Does the Lord's Supper save you? No. Your kids can survive on chicken nuggets, but don't you want to make them eat the vegetables too? This is good for you. This is good for you. This is good for the church. And it exalts Christ to the world. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a command from Christ, it's a gift. The Lord's Supper is a precious gift to the church, and it's not an invention, it's a gift from God, not an invention of man. Notice that the the Lord's Supper is not the disciples' idea. They're just having Passover, and all of a sudden, bam! The Lord's Supper was not invented later by the early church. This is not our idea. This is not an invention of man. It began the night when Jesus was betrayed. It began in Egypt when God pointed to the cross, to the Passover. It began in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. It is a gift from God. It's a gift to us, it's not a gift to God. Unlike all the other religions invented by depraved hearts of men, we are not offering anything to God when we take the Lord's Supper. We're remembering the offering He made for us. We're not making any sacrifice, we're praising Him for His sacrifice. It's a gift and it's a means of grace, a real means of grace. It's not powerless. Now, <laughs> here is where the debate has raged for centuries. Is Christ present in the bread and the wine? If so, how? Is there benefit conveyed to God's people? Or is this just a a dead ritual of remembrance? Is there any grace? Is there any power? Is there any efficacy in the Lord's Supper? If there is, is it automatic? Is it for everybody? Is it conditional? If there's grace, what is the nature of this grace? If it's grace, how is it obtained? And on and on and on. But I want to try to make it really simple. Because I think it is simple. And I think it's wonderful. Take note of the rhythm of this sermon. The Lord's Supper is a sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign. Is that all? By no means. By no means. The Lord's Supper is full of grace for the ones who are full of faith. I'm going to repeat that. The Lord's Supper is full of grace Of grace for the ones who are full of faith. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the soul to be received by faith. Now, you know what? Everybody says stuff like that. But what does it mean? It's a meal for the soul to be received by faith. That sounds cool. But I want you to really understand. What it means to feed on Christ week in and week out when we take the Lord's Supper. My dear brothers and sisters in the Madison Fellowship group made fun of me the other night. When I made an impromptu statement about a bucket of chili warming the belly. I forgive them for that. And and y'all can laugh at that, but y'all know what I mean. Because every one of y'all cooks chili when it gets cold, that first cold snap in fall. Man, when you... Bucket of chili. Like food feeds the belly, the gospel feeds the Christian soul. It really does. And I want to give you... an a quick example of that that I've used before watch Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus isn't that good isn't that good doesn't that warm your soul doesn't that comfort you doesn't that strengthen you? Doesn't that give you assurance? Just think about all that food does for the body and mind. This is what Jesus does for the heart and soul. And the Lord's Supper is one of God's prescribed means to visually aid in nourishing your soul. And the Spirit of Christ is very much present within you, stirring your heart and soul to these pictures and these words by faith because when you hear, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You believe it and it strengthens you. Man, it strengthens you. It satisfies you. It comforts you. It nourishes you. Man, that gives you energy. That gives you joy. That revives your soul. Doesn't it? There is real grace for those regenerate hearts filled with faith. Which leads to the next point. The Lord's Supper is not for everyone. The Lord's Supper is a sign for the church because it's a sign of the church. A sign of the church. Notice the scene. Picture Jerusalem on this night 2,000 years ago. All these little houses. No street lights. Candles flickering through windows in these upper rooms. House after house after house huddled together, taking the to Passover, one lamb to feed just enough of everybody in that room. And there's Jesus there in one of those little rooms. It's evening. He's reclining at the table with the twelve. With the twelve. He's not out in the streets with the masses, he's with his people only he's with his disciples he's with his followers he's with those who believe in him when he says take eat this is my body he doesn't shout that out the window he looks his disciples right in the eye and said this is for you This is for you remember the lord's supper is a meal a meal for the soul to be received by faith how can you take the lord's supper without faith How can you take the Lord's Supper without genuine faith? How can you enjoy a spiritual meal without discerning and believing the spiritual things? Look, the Lord's Supper is only for those who have faith in Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper distinguishes the church from the unbelieving, the unfaithing world. The New Testament teaches clearly that baptism and the Lord's Supper are for disciples of Jesus Christ, those who have been united to him by faith, those who feed on him by faith, those who have received the benefits of the new covenant in his blood by faith. This is why Paul reminds the Corinthians that the Lord's Supper is for those who come together as a church. This is why he also reminds them not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The Lord's Supper is not for those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, those who do not discern the body of Christ. Let me read something from Paul from 1 Corinthians 11 that we point out nearly every week when we take the Lord's Supper. This warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. To eat and drink in an unworthy way without discerning the body can have a variety of applications But the main indictment is this. To take the Lord's Supper without understanding or believing or honoring the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. To to take it without faith. And Judas is the supreme example. The Lord's Supper was not for Judas. Judas was a hypocrite. Judas did not value Christ. He did not not have faith in Christ. He betrayed Christ. Now here's the question. Did Judas take the Lord's Supper? Man, I wish I knew that. I really wish I knew that. But I, I don't think the scriptures are clear on that. And I wanted them to be, by the way. I really wanted it to be clear. But here's what I do know. The Lord's Supper was not for Judas. There's only two possibilities for what happened that night. One is, at the Passover meal, Jesus sent Judas away before they took the Lord's Supper. Or, option number two, Jesus warned Judas and he drank judgment on himself when he took the Lord's Supper. And in both cases, guess what Jesus is doing? What we call fencing the table. In the first case, he's fencing the table by sending Judas away. In the second option, he's fencing the table by warning and identifying Judas before handing out the bread and the cup. See that in verses 20 through 25. Dustin taught on this last week. He said, woe to the man. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And Judas says, is it me? And he says, you said so. A few hours later, Judas was dead and damned forever. The cup of blessing turn to a cup of judgment. Now. Speaking of cups, look at look at verse 29. If you believe that Jesus and his disciples are following this traditional Passover liturgy of the four cups of wine, where's the fourth cup? Where's the cup of consummation? Because he says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The last cup won't come to the last day. The Lord's Supper is not only a sign of the new covenant, but it's a pointer to the new creation. And it's a reminder that the ultimate joy is still to come. Jesus, in a a manner of speaking, leaves his disciples on a cliffhanger. More to come. To be continued. We'll meet again. The party will resume in earnest when the kingdom is consummated. Until then, do this in remembrance of me. This is exactly what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we won't do the Lord's Supper no more. The new covenant has ushered in a new age. The new creation has dawned with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has broken into this world. As it has been famously said, we are in the already but not yet. The Lord's Supper points back to the finished work of Christ while simultaneously pointing forward to his glorious return. It's a foretaste of that messianic banquet that we will have when he comes back. like Isaiah saw, like John saw, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That fourth cup is huge. Full of marrow. Aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain covering that is cast all over all the peoples, that veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah said that. And John said, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saw a new heaven and he saw a new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he saw this holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. He heard a loud voice from the throne and he said, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear, no more death, pain, sorrow, sickness. The fourth and final cup. Representing that fourth promise in Exodus, I will take you to be my people, and you and I will be your God. And so He has, and so He will. And what do we say to these things? How about praise the Lord? How about Hallelujah? Look how the scene ends. Says so they sung a hymn. They sang praises to God. More specifically, they sang praises to Yahweh. This is another reason for the Lord's Supper. It's meant to provoke praise. And I agree with most that believe that this singing of a hymn is actually referring to this tradition of singing the Halil. During Passover, Psalms 113 through 118, and this is where we get our word hallelujah. Which literally means praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And man, it only takes a glance at the halil. It only takes a glance at those Psalms 113 through 118 to realize why it's called the halil. Because it starts and it ends with praise to Yahweh. It's like a poetic Old Testament version of the gospel filled with majesty and condescension, exile and exodus, death and resurrection, victory and triumph, and most of all, praise. Global praise. Never-ending praise to the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do what this heart filled filled with faith is supposed to do in the Lord's Supper it's supposed to provoke praise praise to the everlasting God praise to the God who is merciful, gracious and slow to anger praise to the God who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin and praise to the one who's broken body and poured out blood has granted us all forgiveness of our sins let's pray and sing a hymn. Lord, we give you so much praise, not only for the Lord's Supper, but for what it represents. You have done what we could not do. You've done what we could not imagine And You have done what we could never, ever thank you enough for. You have redeemed us by the blood of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we give you praise. Help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.